up in masters almost sure we have a plan there's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view find the more you think you know unless you really do Back in the saddle and ready to ride from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and if you're fortunate enough to see through the thick fog of meaningless distractions, Netflix, dating shows, superhero movies, sporting events, and whatever the big new video game is this week, it seems like a serious storm is coming for the American Empire and the Western world in general. The capstone cabal seems hell-bent on breaking everything, from creating toxic clouds of vinyl chloride in Ohio that are causing acid rain two states over, to sucking up every last cent in the vault for the military-industrial complex and the orchestration of World War III. Add in that the chasm between housing costs and a living wage has never been wider, the complete corporate harvesting of everything, the sad state of our food supply, the arrival of medical dictatorship, a new round of regulations before you can even process the last one, a culture spiraling downward, and a population so frustrated, angry, emotionally raw, and unstable that even navigating the public through one's daily routine or sharing the road with them can seem a bit sketchy. Take a look at any measurement, like the World Happiness Index or any list that measures quality of life, and you'll find very few American cities even making the top 50. The situation is so dire and corrupt that an entire young generation has just given up on even trying to climb the ladder, and the older generation is in such denial that they can't even see why. So add it all up, and I'd be surprised if we all haven't at least considered an expat lifestyle, and what it might be like to strategically relocate to a more affordable place with a slower pace and a simpler, more freer lifestyle with a smaller target on its back from the big machine. Well, that is what today is all about, as our guest Mike Cobb, the co-founder and CEO of ECI Development, has been educating people on emerging expat communities and helping folks obtain residency, acquire property and even just make investments all across Central America since he first started exploring such things in the mid-90s. Now, ECI development can help almost anyone looking to escape the rat race, improve their standard of living, or get out of what seems to be an empire in decline. And if, like me, you've been thinking about a plan B, well, ECI development should be option A. Coming in hot from his paradise outside the American bubble, the real Freedom Convoy coordinator, optionality expert, and international man of industry, Mike Cobb, welcome to the higher side. Wow, Greg, what an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Good to be here. I try. You. Yeah. You All in a day's work. And that's it. This is really going to be great, man. As I've dug into your various offerings, they seem more and more appealing. And I laid it on pretty thick in that intro. But <laughs> most people listening, I would imagine, have at least daydreamed about becoming an expat in a tropical place. Yeah. But the unknown can be scary, and there is a type of conditioning in America that we're A number one, nowhere else matters, and everywhere is unstable, scary, and poor. And even when you know that's not true, it's still hard to imagine making a commitment to get out, kind of a devil-you-know situation. So 
Many are making what feels like a step in the right direction and getting out of the major cities or moving to the states that seem to value freedom more than the others. It's probably still a half measure, but I think it's safe to say these ideas are swirling around in the minds of Americans maybe more than ever, right? Absolutely. And in your introduction, you really hit a lot of nails on the head, you know, empire and decline and and a medical dictatorship. These are some of the major drivers that are really causing people to start to look overseas, look outside of North America. And truly, it's refreshing. I mean, we've been around, we, we started our business 27 years ago. And and so over the years, we've seen different reasons that people were looking overseas. You know, 27 years ago, when we first started ECI, it was a group of people looking for a higher quality of life and a lower cost of living, sort of that baby boomer retiree that can't afford Florida or, or simply doesn't want to afford Florida or California or one of the more expensive beach locations. And people were looking at property in Mexico, Costa Rica, Panama, Belize. And so we started serving those people. But very interestingly, in the last, maybe in the last decade, but certainly in the last four years since, you know, the COVID lockdowns and the draconian impositions of authority, you know, across the United States, Canada, but we actually have people from New Zealand, Australia, Europe, who are seeking our properties as well. Because, I mean, quite honestly, it's just scary. It's really scary. And people are saying, whoa, like. Nobody believed it could happen. You talked about the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. But I think for so long, people are just like, well, it just can't happen here. It's not going to happen here. That's the kind of stuff that happens somewhere else. But lo and behold, like it happened here. It happened in Canada. It happened in Australia and Europe. And all of a sudden, people started to wake up and go, I'd better get a plan B because I'm not sure plan A is going to work for me much longer, right? And mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's been incredible the number of folks in the last three, four years who have just stepped up and said, gosh, help me, help me find something. And, you know, it's not even help me find something. And so much as at the beginning, it's, you know, what's out there? What can I do? How do I do it? And we really do a ton of education in the space. And look, a lot of people buy from us, but many, 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 many times more people buy from somebody else. And that's okay. I mean, I feel really good when we help somebody make a great decision overseas because it's what they're looking for. They're looking for a solution to a very serious challenge in their lives. And again, now it's a lot more urgent than I think it's ever been before, Greg. Yes. Well said. Well said. And I do appreciate focusing on various creative solutions because oftentimes on shows like this, it's just doom and gloom. It's just going over the bullet points once again of all the things that are screwed up. And we are often ignorant of our options or we just don't get that far down the chain to start thinking, well, what are we going to do about this? Maybe we can't change the big system, but we can change our position in it and our orientation to it. And it's great to be able to make a living where you are aligned with the good. You're aligned with helping people instead of just being stuck in middle management at one of these companies doing the damage to the world. So kudos to you for all those things and more. And we should get at least a quick version of how you actually learned so much about Central America, formed this company, and kind of what the goals and offerings of ECI developments really are. What can you tell us in that regard? Yeah, sure. You know, I was in the computer business. I graduated college in 86, moved to the D.C., Northern Virginia area, was in the computer business. And a buddy of mine from college called me up. It was 1993, called me up one day and he said, hey, Cobster, you know, what are you doing this weekend? And I'm like, I don't know why. He goes, 
I'm going to Belize. You want to come with me? And I'm like, absolutely. And then this is pre-Google, right? There was no Google in 93. I'm sitting there scratching my head going, Belize, Belize, Belize. Where's Belize? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I had to fess up. I'm like, all right, dude, I have no idea where Belize is. Where are we going? And he told me. And so we went. And what was interesting was it was fun. I mean, he was working. He's a lawyer and he was doing asset protection trust for physicians that get sued by ambulance chasers, that kind of stuff, right? So he's hmm. he's helping doctors protect themselves from the ambulance chasing lawyers. And anyway, so we had a great time. I said, Joel, just next time you're coming back, you know, let me know. He said, well, I'm coming back in a couple months. You want to come? I'm like, absolutely. So we planned it. We went down. We spent a few extra days. And while we were down there, we just started putzing around looking for property. And we ended up finding a couple condos that were about to go into foreclosure. They were side by side. And so we bought them, right? And what's interesting, Greg, is that I have a saying that pretty much was coined way back in 93, 94, which is we don't know what we don't know, mm -hmm. right? We don't know what we don't know. And what this developer didn't know and what many developers didn't know in Belize and throughout the region was that there was no mortgage money. So imagine this. So this developer comes down, his name is Jim. Jim comes down, he buys this piece of property. He's got, I don't know, three, four million bucks and he builds, you know, 10 buildings of four units each. And so he's got, you know, 40 units around a pool and he's getting ready to start the second group of 10 buildings and he's out of money. But he never really thought about why he would be out of money because he came down with whatever, three, four million bucks. He spent it on in order to sell these condos. Most buyers coming out of North America expect financing. Right. They're not ready to write a check for 100, 150 grand. I mean, they, oh. they might write a check for 25 or something or 30 or 40, but but not the whole thing. Right. And so the problem was, is Jim and many developers in the region, they didn't know what they didn't know. They didn't know that no bank in Belize was going to lend a foreigner money. And certainly no bank back up in the States or Canada was going to lend you money on a condo in Belize. And so they got stuck. So in order to sell, they would end up self-financing, like they do developer financing. But very quickly, they ran out of money. And so my very first business going back to the end of 93 and into 94 was a small mortgage company. And we basically went around to developers and we bought the paper that they were holding so that they could get the cash back in their business and keep developing, keep building more, more stuff, right? And it was a great business. You know, I'm still at the computer company and we're still doing whatever we're doing. But very quickly, it became apparent that if you had, back then, if you had 350, 400,000 and up, you were buying a really, really nice quality product. You were buying a North American standard product. But if you were writing a check for 100, 150, like even in our condos, I think that the construction itself was good. It might have been solid and good. The problem was, is there were just a lot of things that didn't make any sense. So for example, lighting in the bathroom, right? There's a couple of lights in the bathroom, but instead of having it directly over the mirror or alongside the mirror where it lights up your face, like it was behind your head. Hmm. So like your face is in a shadow and right, or the countertops were too high or too low and the bar, you know, I remember that in our place, they were too low. Like you'd bang your knees every time you tried to take your bar stool and sit at the kitchen counter, right? I remember one condo that I looked at for collateral, like I was the guy that walked around and went in and inspected the collateral that we were going to buy the paper from. So this one developer had built some condos. And I remember there was one outlet on one wall in the living room and the people, it was a resale, right? The people were already living there. And so they had put two outlet strips, one going each direction. 
extension cords that ran to outlet strips to get power around the living room, right? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> this is just, and I just thought to myself, I was talking to Joel, and I'm like, man, we can fix all of these problems for basically free, right? Put the lighting in the right place, fix the countertops, you know, adding a few outlets. I mean, that's 10, 15 bucks a piece, but I mean, generally free, right? I said, you know, for almost free, we could offer an American standard product and really beat our competition significantly with a better product, a more familiar product to a North American client. And so that's the genesis of our business. We formally launched our development company in 1996. And I left the computer business a year and a half after that full time. And, and it's just gone gangbusters ever since. We started in Belize. We went to Nicaragua, then we were in Costa Rica and Panama, and now we have projects in Honduras and a budding project. And you'll like this one. We can come back and talk about it. A Bitcoin community, a village, a Bitcoin village in El Salvador <laughs> that Mike Peterson asked us to build, and we're in Honduras. So we've really grown our business over the years because here's the reality. There are different strokes for different folks. Not everybody wants the same thing when they move overseas. For example, even just as simple as I want to be on the ocean. All right. In Central America, you've got three oceans. You've got Caribbean, you've got Atlantic, and you've got Pacific. And they're all very different, right? You're in California, I heard San Diego, right? So you're in mm -hmm. the Pacific. And if you said, I want San Diego, but I want more freedom and lower cost of living, right? I would say, well, look at Guanacaste, Costa Rica, look at Nicaragua, look at El Salvador, because basically you've got San Diego climate, you got San Diego, you got cactus, palm trees, beautiful Pacific Ocean, and, and it's warm enough you can swim in it. The temperature is 75 to 80 degrees in the ocean, right? It's warm. Oh. Some people want Caribbean, some people want Atlantic. Other people want highlands, right? The springtime, all the time climate, the cool where it's 60 at night and 75 in the day, every day of the year, it's where they grow coffee, right? And so Central America in Latin America generally, but even you know in this little area called Central America, there are just so many geographies and so many different climate types. And so we made a decision very, very early in our business back in 2002 that we were going to be serving people where they wanted to be. And so we started to add properties and add communities so that we had a real variety of offerings, you know, for the widest set of customers that we could serve. Mm. I love it. I love it. And I have been looking at a lot of houses lately. So those elements of intelligent design and those mm -hmm. little details, they certainly do matter. And when you sign on the dotted line of a place and you overlook some of those details, you're just like, damn it. I guess I'm dealing with this for several years before I move on. That's right. And a lot of those things are kind of the easy things to see. You know, we do publish a consumer resource guide that we get into a lot of the more, you know, granular things. But one of my favorites actually is is the house or condominium plumbed for hot water in all the bathrooms? And in Latin America, that's not always the case. Many times the master bedroom, master bath will have you know hot water. There'll be one hot water heater to be somewhere outside the master bedroom, either on a wall outside or in a closet somewhere. But the whole rest of the house, maybe there's a guest bathroom, guest shower, a couple bedrooms, whatever, a kitchen. You know, there's no hot water in the house. And I mean, again, these are the kinds of things that we as a consumer, we don't know what we don't know. We need to actually see if there's really hot water in all the bathrooms, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So 
for people who are worried about the future in America and are a little expat curious as to their options for living in a tropical location in an area with a lower cost of living where they can actually feel like they're thriving and most likely working remotely, paint a picture of some of the options that you think might get them excited. Because if you go to your website, you have several communities, you have tiny homes, you have things that seem more like a resort and other things that seem more like your standard condo, but talk to us about those range of options. Sure. But can I actually back it up, Greg, and just go a little bit higher level at the beginning? Because when you get down to actual product type, like we're pretty far down the road for somebody who's just kind of expat beginning. Sure. And there are some other things that are really, really important for people to begin to think about, right? And so let me just frame it in two big areas, and then we can start to drill it down a little bit. You know, one is this concept of, am I running from or am I running to, mm. right? And it's a spectrum. It's never one or the other. It's always some of both, right? But primarily, am I running from a situation in the U.S. and I'm looking for a plan B, right? And a plan B for most people is that, right? It's a plan B. Plan A is to stay here and hope it doesn't get any worse or, or ride it out because, you know, whatever, we have family, friends, we have a job, blah, 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 blah. So we're going to ride it out here as long as we can. But plan B is sort of that, okay, it's there if I need it or when I need it, right? Versus running two, which is, hey, you know what? My job is portable. My boss said it's okay if I work from home. So home can be anywhere where I have good internet or phone service or access to an airport or whatever the conditions are, right? So now all of a sudden, that's a whole different analysis because a plan B is sort of what I would call the least cost way to get what you're looking for, which is a backup plan, right? Running towards is actually a real lifestyle decision where you're saying, you know what, I'm going to really try to find a place that I want to be. That's a beautiful home for myself, my family, maybe my children, you know, are there schools nearby? Is there a church nearby that, you know, we can attend? You know, where's the grocery store? How far to the gas station? How am I going to make new friends? Is there, is there a Rotary Club, a Lions Club? I mean, whatever it happens to be, is there soccer or, you know, martial arts for my kids to get into or ballet? I have two daughters and they were ballet, right? So it's a whole different kind of set of considerations. And so what we normally do is when we start to engage with somebody who's looking, right, in the early stages, we kind of walk through some of those things and help them think about it. And we have we have a great survey that we send out to folks so they can kind of do it themselves. It's in a self-assessment, you know, where you kind of walk through some of those, what I'm going to call bigger picture kind of questions, because what will happen is, is depending on how you answer those questions and where you are in your life, small children, adult children, empty nesters, single person, all those kinds of things will kind of make some options not very practical and other options, very practical. And then once you've figured out what those practical options are, then you can start to layer in things like, well, do I wanna be on the Caribbean or the Pacific? Do I wanna live in an urban environment or more of a resort environment? Do I want a tiny home or do I want a single family home or is a condo what I'm looking for, right? And so we can really move from the bigger, bigger questions down into more of a product specific kind of discussion. But we really like to help people get through that because at the end of the day, what we're really after are very, very happy neighbors and 
we've served well over a thousand folks over the last 27 years. And many of them are neighbors. They've moved full-time. Many are investors or vacation property when they rent it out when they're not there too, right? So we've got that element. But many people are either full-timers or snowbirds. And so creating that real sense of community and having happy neighbors. But by the time we get to product discussions, we're pretty sure, usually the person's pretty sure that we're a good fit. But early on in that discussion, we tell people frequently, hey, you know what? By the way, you've answered these questions on the survey, Medellin, Colombia would be perfect for you or Santiago, Chile or somewhere else. And we don't work there, but we say based on the information you've given us, here's where you should probably be looking that would be a good fit for you. You know, and they go off and presumably, you know, go do that, right? But by the time we get to product, it's probably a pretty good fit. But yeah, tiny homes, homes, mid-sized homes, large homes, estate lots, condos. You know, we really offer a very wide variety of products as well once we get to the point of knowing that that's a good fit for the person who's in the process. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And so, yeah, to, to build a foundation and maybe back up to getting people's mental wheels turning about where might be right for them. You mentioned Nicaragua, Belize, Panama, Argentina, Costa Rica, El Salvador, and Honduras. Well, a lot of people listening probably just don't know much about the nuances of these countries. How would you compare and contrast some of them in terms of economic stability, political stability, corruption level, some of the things that might separate them from each other? Yeah, boy, that's a pretty wide field to try to compare (laughs) all of them. But let me make some big, broad generalizations. One of the reasons that Belize is so popular with U.S. and Canadians is that English is the official language. And it's, you know, whatever, hour and a half from Miami, two hours from Houston, about, you know, five hours from Toronto. So it's, you know, lots of direct airlift, but English, English, right, is huge. And also English common law, right, which is the legal system is 49 of the 50 states. Louisiana has civil law. And in Canada, it's all the provinces, but Quebec is common law. So it's kind of how we think legally. We, you know, we've all read contracts and you know, so we have a sense of kind of how it works. Civil law is very different. Civil law was written by Napoleon, of all people. Physically, the man wrote civil law. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, they still have what he wrote. But anyway, it's a very different type of legal framework. And so when you get outside of Belize into the rest of Central America and South America, you're into civil law. And then Spanish or Brazil, Portuguese, right? So you've got language issues, but you've also got this legal framework issue that's different. It's not bad. There's no good or bad to it. It's just different. It's not familiar, right? So I would say that from that perspective, that's an easy one. I think that's why Belize has become an easy first step for so many people, the language and then the common law and then similar culture to it. Culturally, it's much more familiar it was British Honduras. So again, culturally, there's some alignment there as opposed to you know other places that were Spanish or Portuguese, which are a slightly different cultural alignment. You know, economically, I would say Panama is the most economically stable of all of the countries in the region. The Panama Canal, I call it the ATM machine for Panama, <laughs> like literally every day. They just go and I think it's about, you know, four or five million bucks every day. 
they just withdraw four or five million dollars every day from their Panama Canal ATM machine. Like every ship that passes through pays them. And they're just every day, every day, every day. So they've got real money as a basis of stability. It's got a relatively low population. The population of the country is about four million. And then they've really done a tremendous job of leveraging the canal into logistics. They are an incredible logistics center. Dell, Caterpillar, many other companies have their kind of Latin American headquarters there. They've become a center for call centers because of the bilingual nature of Panama. They're a financial services center. I know the Panama Papers gave them a black eye, but I mean, <laughs> yes. that was sort of like, I don't know, sticking an ant in front of a semi like, yeah, okay, there was a bump in the road, but <laughs> it, just, it just kept on going. Corruption's everywhere. Yeah, right. So economically, Panama is very stable. The downside to Panama was of all the countries in Central America, they were the most draconian in their COVID response. They locked down severely. They enforced it. They gave people two hours every other day to go shopping. So life's always trade-offs, right? Nicaragua, on the other hand, is probably the least economically well off. I think it's actually economically stable, but it's the poorest country in Central America and in South America. Only Haiti is poorer, right? So it's Caribbean. But in Central and South America, Nicaragua is the poorest country. But I lived there for 14 years. My wife, I went there with Carol, my wife, my two-year-old daughter, Amanda. We had another little daughter, Emily, who came along. And, you know, the population is about 6 million people, but about five between five and 10% of the people are pretty well off. And some percentage of those people are, you know, millionaires, right? Probably three, four, 5% of the population of Nicaragua has a net worth of a million bucks. So you've got this population of 300, you know, two, 300,000 people who are all really, really wealthy. So it's kind of ironic. It's kind of a weird contrast, but Nicaragua has world-class medical care. They've got the burn hospital for all of Central America. Like every other country flies their burn victims to Nicaragua for treatment in their in the Vivian Pellis Hospital. And you know, we did all of our medical there. And I mean it's truly world-class medical care because you got, you know, a couple hundred thousand very, very wealthy people who want very high quality medical care. But the cost of living is insanely inexpensive. And from a political standpoint, they were the country that locked down the least. They did not have masking mandates. They did not have business closures. They left it up to individuals to decide or businesses to decide. If you want to close your business, close it. If you want to spread your tables out at the restaurant, spread them out. You want to wear a mask, wear a mask. You don't want to wear a mask, don't wear a mask. So it was really interesting to see that kind of, I would say at either end of the spectrum, right? Panama, economically stable, draconian response to COVID. Nicaragua, you know, economically stable, but very, very poor as a per capita income per person, but still, you know, on the other side, very free in how they responded to COVID. And, and I would put the other countries kind of in the middle. Costa Rica probably was a little more draconian, Belize a little less so, but they all kind of fit on that spectrum somewhere. But either end, that's what I would say. Those are the bookends of that particular economics, freedom versus lockdown and that kind of thing. So, yeah, well, that's a great crash course for sure. And I've been saying that's kind of the silver lining of COVID is we did get to see 
when the shit does hit the fan, who responds in which ways and where do we want to be in coordination with the general response? Obviously, things can change, but that's why a lot of people are moving from one kind of state to another right now, because maybe their worldview only encompasses the 50 states, but they're assessing who responded in which ways and where do I want to be? And maybe we just need to broaden our horizons out a little bit into Central America and and look at some of those things. And really, it's the the vaccine requirements would be something that I would think about. Obviously, just I'm sure your whole interest in what you do has exploded since COVID. But are there places where the people who chose not to get the shots would probably want to avoid or, you know, can they navigate regardless? You know, that's interesting. I think right now, navigation is pretty easy throughout the region without a vaccine. I know that if you're flying to a country like Nicaragua, for example, you have to show that you either have the vaccine or you've taken a PCR test, but there's no vaccine requirement. And I I don't think there's a vaccine requirement anywhere in the region now. At one point, it was either the test or the vaccine, and, and a lot of countries don't even require the test anymore. Good, good. Yeah, I mean, it's silly to have to ask. I can't believe we do, but I I do. And, uh, you know, yeah. you, you mentioned the cultural familiarity and also the language barriers. Those are certainly factors that I think a lot of people consider. Which one of these countries or even developments that you've been a part of would you say are some of the largest expat communities and what would their size actually look like? Yeah, well, you know, in terms of countries, and we haven't talked about Mexico, but Mexico's been drawing expats for, you know, whatever, 100 years or longer, right? But, you know, since the 60s, when they started doing the movies down there in Acapulco and Elvis and, you know, that whole gang were down there, I mean, it started to really take Mexico and put it on the map for an expat destination. So Mexico's really done pretty well with pulling in expats and creating wonderful communities for them, whether it's Guadalajara or Puerto Vallarta or Merida or the Riviera Maya, those are certainly places that have done well. And we don't work there, by the way. We don't work in Mexico at all, but we admire what they've done. The prices are a lot higher because, again, they're much more popular. They're further up what I call the development slash popularity curve. So when you've got places that are more developed and more popular, well, prices are higher, right, than places that are less popular. Costa Rica probably came in second. They started really promoting themselves as a retirement destination, as an expat destination in the 80s. And they jumped on it hard and they had some great retirement laws, pensionado, that's what they call them, pensionado visas, retirement visas, that you could get into Costa Rica with, you know, eight, nine hundred, a thousand dollars a month social security payment or pension payment and get a visa, get a permanent residency there. And so they did a tremendous job with that. And so San Jose, the Central Valley, that's been really, really popular, as have the beaches in Guanacaste, which is the northwest corner of Costa Rica. In fact, it's so popular that we now have a Four Seasons Resort, JW Marriott's, Weston Resorts. I mean, all kinds of very, very high-end resort properties, high-end residential communities. And again, it's very popular. The prices are pretty high. The Caribbean side of Costa Rica has kind of been the redheaded stepchild. And and so, you know, we own a property on the Caribbean. We've not developed it, but we're currently partnering with a guy that's got a beautiful community there and we're helping him finish it out. And 
So that's one that we're starting to see some real traction on now that we've gotten our arms into it. But Costa Rica, very, very popular with expats for whatever, 50 years, since the 80s, 40, 50 years. Panama, probably right there, right after that, just because of the canal. Many people in the U.S. military were stationed there at one point or another. They did a lot of you know, training and rotations through the country. And so a lot of people have been to Panama, a lot of U.S. citizens. And so there's sort of a familiarity and a comfort with it. And I think that has let Panama kind of rise very quickly in the program. They have great residency programs, pensionado visas. Belize, a little bit later to the game, they really started hitting it hard in the you know, mid to late 90s. So we're talking last, you know, 30 years, say. And they also have some great visas. They have what's called a QRP, Qualified Retired Persons Program. The QRP program, it's excellent. In terms of permanent residency programs, again, it's easy to get. It's easy to maintain. You only have to be in Belize a couple of weeks a year and you can maintain a permanent residency there. So it's a great plan B, by the way. The Belize QRP is a great plan B because you only have to be there, it's either two or four weeks, I can't remember anyway, but it's not long. I mean, a couple of vacations, you maintain a permanent residency, so you have that in your pocket. And then they've got investor residencies that are pretty favorable as well. So I think that's sort of the gamut of you know where people have gone. And Nicaragua, probably a lot lower on the list, not as many folks living in Nicaragua as expats. That number is probably maybe 10,000. And let me just run some numbers. Mexico, you know, several hundred thousand, maybe as high as a million. Costa Rica, probably a hundred thousand. Panama, maybe 50, 60,000. Belize, 20, 30,000. Nicaragua, 10,000. So you can just see the number of expats kind of indicating the popularity, but also how long they've been in the game, right? The longer a country's been pulling in expats and building communities for them, you know, the more folks that come there. It's interesting, Greg, where we've actually seen the most traction is Nicaragua because, I mean, we've got, I don't know, we have about 200 addresses that are up or almost finished. We have about 80 homes under construction and they'll wrap up here by August. But when those 80 homes finish, we'll have over 200 addresses on property. And I'm guessing that about half of them are going to be occupied either by snowbirds six months out of the year or full time. So. Our Grand Pacifica community is really, you know, it's a community, it's a village now. And what drove the sales and drove the really the relocation, right? That's what's happening. It's not just sales. I mean, if somebody buys a house and puts it in the rental program as an investment property, that's great. And overnight guests are wonderful, but they're really not part of the neighborhood, right? They eat at the restaurant. You might see them at the bar or whatever, go surfing with them or play golf or whatever, right? But they're not really part of the community per se. What really drove so many people to decide to own a property and then live at Grand Pacifica full time was the response to COVID you know, around the world. And Nicaragua's laissez-faire, like, hey, come on down here and we're not going to bug you. And people looked at that and they were like, really? We're like, yeah, really. And probably of the hundred sales that happened in 2000, say 20 to early 21, so maybe that 16, 18 month period, about 100 sales, three quarters of them were in response to COVID. And many, many, more than half of those people are moving full time. So yeah, 
it's been an exodus. And I don't know, I feel fortunate that we were in business. We knew what we were doing. We had enough capacity to serve those folks. And we did. And we are. Wow. Well, your passion is quite contagious. I'm almost ready to go. One foot out the door. Uh, so <laughs> Come visit. <laughs> I, I, that's a great idea. And we actually got connected through a listener named Karen, who is actually a San Diego local who I've met before. Nice, kind lady. She is really active in the Stop 5G movement in Southern California because she is EMF sensitive and has been feeling more and more ill because of the increased density of all the electromagnetic pollution. Yep. And I don't know how often you work with people in that sort of situation, but some of these communities as I understand, they might be Wi-Fi free or at least better places to live for people with EMF concerns, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Karen and I have been going back and forth now for, I don't know, four or five months, really working on the design of a neighborhood at Grand Pacifica specifically for folks like her who are EMF sensitive. I'm careful not to use the word no EMF because I don't think that exists in the world anymore, right. but sure, sure. very, very low EMF, right? And yeah, so we're actually working with her and some other folks to design a neighborhood that will be very, very low EMF. And a couple things. One is the physical location of the site. It's kind of in a little bit of a bowl. So it's down low. We've got teak forest on one side. We're also in the teak business. We've we started planting teak back in 1999. and But anyway, we've got a teak forest on one side of the area, and then we may continue with teak and wrap the neighborhood in teak because obviously <laughs> you know, trees are a great reducer of any ambient EMF. Sure. But the other thing that I think the thing that got Karen even started in this was the fact, <laughs> this is incredible, way back in 2004, 2005, we decided that we were going to run fiber to every address at Grand Pacifica. And so we actually were the first fiber to the home project in Central America and the second in Latin America, which is incredible. Wow. Back in, yeah, 2005, I think we, we had it installed. And somehow she, well, whatever, we published that. We had a bunch of press releases and all kinds of stuff. She found out about it. And because we've run fiber, you know, we have the ability to wire homes with very, very high speed internet, but we don't have to depend upon Wi-Fi. So we're able to run the fiber, put that in the neighborhood. And then, you know, the homes, I've been learning a lot. Apparently there are a lot of building methodologies and a lot of very simple things. Instead of using plastic conduit for your electric wire, you know, you use a metal conduit, right? So, I mean, just something like that, the shielding reduces the EMF coming off of just your general electrical wires in your wall. You know, concrete construction, which we do, is another shielding. Uh, apparently, low E windows do a pretty good job as well. So, I mean, there's just a lot of things that we've been learning about construction methodology, some of which we already do, concrete construction, you know, and low E glass and things like that. But then the shielding and other, you know, I hate to call them tricks, but other <laughs> techniques that you can use and employ to reduce the EMF. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, Greg, because... We never would have thought about this, but this is a great example of, you know, somebody finding us and us in this case, really being able to build something that's important for them and really serves a need in the marketplace that I don't think anyone else in Latin America is doing it. I haven't seen it. So 
to solve a problem for folks that we're able to do it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I'm so impressed with this. And somewhat related, another thing that I think would interest listeners of this show, I've heard you mention agro-resilient communities being built. And I wouldn't call them prepper communities exactly, but sustainable permaculture communities that focus on growing their own high quality food. Yep. Talk to us about that being in the mix with some of these options. Yeah. We haven't done much in the formal sense of that, but our property is 2,500 acres. It was a farm basically when we bought it. And so we've continued to farm you know, large swaths of it. You know, we lease it to farmers who come in and they plant sorghum and corn and we run a bunch of cattle on the property and have for years. We've been into beekeeping. I can't remember how many hives we have now, but we've been into beekeeping for maybe about 10 years. 20 years ago, we started planting various kinds of fruit trees. Noni, we planted a ton of noni, a very powerful antioxidant. They smell like crap and they taste even worse, but um, <laughs> but but they're really good for you. So, But we've planted orange, soursop, ton of mangoes, limon, which is kind of a interesting hybrid of lemon and lime in Nicaragua. So we've done a bunch of orchard stuff. And just recently, last summer, we started to do more of what I'm going to call vegetable gardens. And we dedicated some land, we've plowed it, we ran water to it, we're building some fencing and some other things to make it easy for folks who want to do their own gardening. But the next step for us, and we're probably still 12 months away, is to actually bring in, hire, or partner with some kind of agronomist who really understands the resiliency piece, because it's different. I mean, we do produce a ton of food and the cattle and the bees and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. But to create that resiliency piece is a specialization that we don't have, and we want to bring that in. So sometime in the next 12 months, we're going to layer in the resiliency piece to the agro piece we already have. And we know we need outside expertise and talent to do that. So stay tuned. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll keep you posted as that gets some reality on the resiliency piece. But by its own nature, the area, I mean, the area we're in was a subsistence agriculture area for, I mean, it's a farming area. And many of the people who lived there had very little cash economy. They were subsistence farmers all over. So the depth of knowledge on what it takes to subsist on agriculture alone in that part of Nicaragua is deep and rich. And we will certainly be tapping into that as well. It's just not, it's micro and that's the difference. I mean, we're, we're going to tap into the wisdom and the knowledge and we already employ about 300 people in, in the local neighborhood, but how do you take it and scale it? That's the piece that we need to bring in the outside talent for. But the area itself, yeah, we're right on the ocean. And you know, we have a farmer's market every Saturday and the local farmers bring in their produce. The fishermen bring in the fresh fish that they caught the night before and they'll fillet it and they offer it. So it's already mostly there, but we just need to really get the intelligence of resiliency kind of factored in. But that's common, Greg, that's common. Right on. Yeah, it's just all about fine tuning. And there's just something about certain personalities that are like, well, I don't know a ton about that, but we're going to go for it. And we're going to move towards achieving the goal. And we're going to partner with anybody who can help. And yep. I just think that's a beautiful thing. Thank you. Yeah, it is about partnering, by the way. I mean, we've always been about team. 
because you know what? I don't know what I don't know. I love this saying too, that the more I learn, the less I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Story of my life for sure. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So you mentioned the Bitcoin thing in El Salvador. I wanted to make sure we fit that into the first hour because it's creative and it is a curiosity of mine, but El Salvador, people probably know, is one of the countries that has decided, I think the first country, maybe there are a couple others now that are at least Bitcoin curious, but they've made Bitcoin a national currency. And it's a bit of an experiment. And I hear mixed reviews, but how would you say it's going from actually being there? And how are you using it in what you do? Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot to unpack. So let me just kind of say that the reason that we're even involved there was about six years ago now, we took our very first crypto transaction. It was Bitcoin transaction. And it was a significant one. And it was for some teak. All right? It was some of our teak plantation. And we got known as a developer who would accept Bitcoin, crypto. Mm-hmm. And so we started getting invited to speak at various crypto and Bitcoin events. And so this was, I guess, coming up on two years ago now. I was speaking at the Bitcoin conference in Miami. I'd gotten done, uh, was back at our booth and this guy comes up and introduces himself and he says, hey, you know, you're Mike Cobb. I'm like, yeah, yeah, so I was, you know, I was watching you and, and I, you know, looked at your website. He goes, I own a piece of property in El Salvador in El Zonte. Would you be interested in developing it with me or for me? He said, I'm in the food business. And he says, would you be interested in developing it for me? And I'm like, well, okay, yeah, nice to meet you, but here's what I'm going to ask. When you get home from this conference, would you please send me a copy of your title? Send me a few pictures and send me, you know, if you have any maps of the property or whatever, just send me a few things, but I got to see the title, right? Because I get so many people, I probably get approached by email and in person probably four or five times a month. I mean, even today, I had some people talking to me about a property in Cabo San Lucas, right? And so, If it's interesting to me, the first thing I say is, well, give me a copy of your title. I want to know I'm dealing with the owner of the property, right? And so truthfully, Greg, probably three quarters of the people I never hear from again. But, you know, whatever, Tuesday, Wednesday, the following week in my inbox, boom, boom, boom. Here comes, you know, three or four emails from this Mike Peterson guy, the title, some pictures, pop, 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 pop. And I'm like, all right, well, good. So he and I go back and forth for, I don't know, about six weeks. And I'm talking to my business partner. We're putting the letter of intent together. And so finally, my business partner, he's the lawyer, and he gives it to his secretary and says, all right, well, Mary's going to put this into a formal letter of intent. And like, all right, you send it to Mike. I'm like, fine, I'll send it to Mike. I get a call the next morning, Greg. This is beautiful. I get a call at like 8.01. Mary's in the office, you know, spot on eight, right? 8.01, I get a call from Mary. She goes, Mike, 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 do you know who you're dealing with in El Salvador? And I'm like, oh, shit, oh. right? I mean, <laughs> I'm just like, you know, because El Salvador's got a bad reputation. I'm like, I have no idea, but, you know, okay, tell me, Mary. She goes, it's Mike Peterson. And I'm like, uh, yep, I knew that already. She goes, do you know who he is? I'm like, no. She goes, he's the guy that got Bitcoin started in El Salvador. I just read an article about him in Forbes. And, bup, 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 bup. and I'm like, really? <laughs> I'm like, really? She's like, yeah. And so she sent me the link. I read the article in Forbes about how he got it started. And you know, Greg, what went through my mind almost immediately was I'm like, wow, this is exactly the kind of guy I want to do business with. He never once tooted his own horn. 
like he never was braggadocious, nothing. I mean, he never even said like, I'm Mike Peterson, the Mike Peterson. Yeah. Never, you know, right. He was just like, yeah, I'm Mike Peterson. I got this land and we worked out a deal and it was a good deal for him. It was a good deal for us. It was a joint venture. Right. And yeah, Mike Peterson was the guy that got Bitcoin started. And he did it in a very interesting way, Greg. I don't know if you know his background, but he has a food business in the States, but he moved with his wife to El Salvador, goodness, 12, 15 years ago now. But they've been surfing there. He's a surfer and they've been surfing forever. And they set up a foundation to help other charities and missions who wanted to come to El Salvador to do charity work, right? You know, build schools or, you know, help out, do whatever they're going to do. So he built a foundation there to help these organizations who were coming to El Salvador to do good work, to do all the logistics. He would arrange the buses. He would arrange the meals. If they needed equipment, he would source it. So when they got there, they could just do what they came to do. They didn't have to worry about all the on the ground stuff. That was all taken care of by him. And so I guess it's probably now, what, five years ago, pre-COVID, you know, four or five years ago, somebody came to one of his groups and said, hey, you know, we have this huge Bitcoin donor. Do you know anyone who could, but the condition was, I'll give you this huge Bitcoin donation, but you can't sell it. You got to keep it in Bitcoin. And these guys knew Mike was into Bitcoin and crypto and stuff. So they reached out to Mike. He said, yeah, I think I can do something. So he looked at it. He created this wallet. He gave, I don't know, a thousand people in El Zonte the code. They could put it on their phone. So these thousand people on their phone, they set up the wallet. And this guy came along and gave them all like, you know, 30, 40 bucks of Bitcoin. And it started this little local economy and people were using Bitcoin. I mean, for everything around town, right? Then when COVID hit, Mike went back to this group and said, hey, can you go see the donor? and see if he would be willing to continue to fund the people who have wallets because we're a tourist town and the planes aren't flying and everyone's starving and, and if he could just help out. And this guy said, sure. And I can't remember how much he gave a month to everybody who still had a wallet. And President Bukele's brother apparently caught wind of it and came down and sat with Mike. And Mike was like, you know, I'm happy to help you, but I'm not really your guy. You know, I did it here in, in El Zonte, but you want to do it for a country. Here are the people you should talk to and bop, 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 and he handed it off. And you're right, Greg, September 9th of last year, September 9th of 2021, El Salvador became the first country in the world to accept Bitcoin as legal tender, you know, alongside the US dollar. It's a dollar economy and they now accept Bitcoin as well. And you're right, it's been a mixed bag. I think just like, you know, FTX, everyone, oh, not everyone, many people look at crypto and Bitcoin as, you know, this gamble, this speculative, I'm going to buy it and I'm going to make a ton of money, but nobody ever thinks for every winner, there's a loser in every market transaction, right? So I think that a lot of people kind of got burned out on the Bitcoin, then it went from whatever, 60 to 20. And, and so if people were holding it, they, you know, they saw a lot of their wealth evaporate. So yeah, it's had a rocky start in El Salvador, but the people who are fundamentally transactional with their Bitcoin, I think have done okay. Again, nobody likes to see it at 20 instead of 60, but it is what it is. And again, if it's a transactional medium, which it is for so many people in El Salvador, and think about it this way. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why I think Bitcoin is incredibly wonderful for a country like El Salvador. You know, 
El Salvador has as many people working outside the country as working inside the country. I can't remember the number of El Salvadorians who live outside of El Salvador, but it's almost as many people who live in El Salvador. But I know the number of people employed outside the country equals the number employed in the country. And so previously, you know, you've got a son when he's 20, takes off, comes to the United States, gets a job and is making whatever, making okay money. And it costs more to live in the U.S., but still, he's got a couple hundred bucks he wants to send home to mom every month, right? And he has to go to Western Union and they whack him 40 bucks or whatever. And then mom has to get on a bus and go to San Salvador and take the whole day to go to the Western Union and they whack her another 20 bucks, right? So now all of a sudden 200 becomes 140 and she's had to burn a whole day and he's had to burn a couple hours over lunch and right? And it's just inefficient and expensive. Well, now with Bitcoin in the wallet, the Lightning Wallet, son can literally send mom $200 and she gets $199.94 or something instantaneously on her cell phone. And for that reason alone, I think that Bitcoin has been hugely transformative to the unbankable or unbanked. I mean, maybe they're not unbankable, but the unbanked in El Salvador have benefited tremendously because now their bank is their cell phone and they don't need a bank account at a bank, you know, and all the hassles to go get one and all the bureaucracy and on and on and on. They can just go to a store and they can buy a dress for their daughter or a pupusa for 25 cents with Bitcoin with their phone. And wow, what a huge, incredible, awesome, wonderful difference that has made in the lives of so many people in El Salvador. But again, for many people who thought it was a way to get rich quick, you know, they didn't. And, right. you know, and so there's been a lot of bad press too. But it's a mixed bag. But I think on the all in all, it is a far better, more wonderful thing for that country than it is a downside. Yeah, that is a, a great, great detailed summary. And I always root for success when trying new things. It really drives me nuts to see so many people kind of trying to celebrate a failure in this regard. It's like, look, we are born into systems that have monopolies established, little banking mafias. Everybody's getting their peace. Yeah. And there's so much corruption and in inequality. And it's really unfair. So when someone actually does try to disrupt all that and take a leap and make things better. I think it should be celebrated. And yep. I'm fairly neutral on digital currencies because I know there's a lot of talk about how they're used for greater control. And that's probably true, but I think it'll be something more like a central bank digital currency where the old system adopts a new technology rather than Bitcoin itself. And who knows, but like, let's throw some Hail Marys because <laughs> there's been some established order for so long that is slowly sucking away people's wealth and it's just inconvenient to do anything. And it's just like, you know, let's try some new things. So I appreciate it. And I, I hope it does work out for them. Yeah, I hope it does too. And for us as a company, we're going to build a wonderful community there in Alzante. We've named the community Granzante. It's a phenomenal piece of property that Mike owns. It's sloping hillside with beautiful ocean views. It's right above the town. So literally walk to, you know, whatever, 20 restaurants in 15 minutes and all the services you need are right there. But 
every home site will have a view of the Pacific Ocean. And very few properties are truly that way. I mean, you've got front of the hill, back of the hill, you've got, you know, whatever. This property is just incredible. And we're excited to build this community for the Bitcoin community. And every transaction will be placed in Bitcoin. We will only accept Bitcoin for the sale of property. Damn. And once the community is up and functioning, whoever the operators are, it could be us, it could be, you know, third parties. You know, Mike has stipulated that he wants all transactions on property to occur in Bitcoin as well. I don't think he can prevent dollar, you know, because dollar's a legal currency, but I think Bitcoin's certainly going to be encouraged for transactional purposes at the resort, at the property, at the restaurants, rentals of homes and things like that. But it's exciting. And I agree with you. Time to cheer the folks who are out there on the cutting edge, bringing new things to market that are, and it is transformative. For many people in El Salvador, it's been transformative in positive ways. I hope it continues to be because mm -hmm. it, I mean, again, these folks are really, they can't bank. They just simply can't get and maintain bank accounts. And having a bank account on their phone, you know, really gives them a whole new freedom and a whole new economy, mm -hmm. right? That they've just simply never had before. It's exciting. It is. And a community of Bitcoiners, I'm sure is a mixed bag. There is something about the crypto bro archetype that is annoying. There is that joke. How do you know somebody has Bitcoin? Well, they've already told you 10 times, but... <laughs> There's also like a libertarian spirit to those folks. And yeah. uh, I definitely have a lot of overlap in the things I appreciate with those folks as well. So I just think it's cool. People should be doing unique things. We only live once. This is supposed to be kind of like a sandbox playground to experience all kinds of yeah. innovative things. And we just kind of get beaten down by the structures and the system that is imposed upon us. And sometimes we go our whole life just being frustrated with our structure and environment and we don't do anything about it. So that's really what all this is about is doing a little something about it. Yep. And man, I know we're kind of getting to the end of the line here, but I wanted to at least ask you about due diligence because I hear you talk about it a lot. I know it's important. Yep. We want to know how to make good decisions and feel confident when we really don't know a lot about a region. I'm sure partnering with your company would help a little bit in that regard. You know, there's a trust situation there. You want to go with someone uh, that's pretty established and you feel good about. But what would you say about the importance of due diligence for the average person who's maybe thinking about getting involved in some of this stuff? Sure. Greg, is it okay if I tell people how to get a copy of our consumer resource guide? Of course, of course. Okay. So the best way to get a copy is actually just send me an email, mike.cobb. It's mike.cobb, C-O-B-B at ecidevelopment.com. If you just send an email to mike.cobb at ecidevelopment.com and in the subject line, just write something about fireside chat slash consumer guide, consumer guide. But I always like to know where folks heard me as well. So if you can just write something in there about that too. Sure. We'll send you a link to download the consumer resource guide. It is a phenomenal book. It's got 15 questions that we should ask when we buy property overseas. And it's hard to remember 15 things. So I'm going to give everyone listening right now three things to remember. Everybody can remember three things. So remember these three things. 
buy what you see. If it's there, it's there. If it's not there, maybe it will be, maybe it won't. Number one, buy what you see. Second thing, own community, right? Are there people around? Is it the kind of place that you will enjoy spending time? And or if it's an investment, is it the kind of place that a vacationer would enjoy spending time? Is there a tennis court? Is there a golf course? Is there a gym? What kinds of amenities are around, right? Own community. And then the last one, the third one is know the developer. You know, we've been around for 27 years as ECI. I've been working in the region for 29 years now. You know, track record's important, but just simple things before I wrote a check for a condo or a home or a property, I would just simply ask the developer to see a copy of their financials or see a copy of their business plan, right? Just some simple things we as consumers can do to check them out, right? Because there is no better business bureau. There are no regulatory agencies. And really what this consumer resource guide does with the 15 questions, and there are several articles in there as well. And by the way, it's not a sales document. I think the back inside cover has my contact information, our phone number, I don't know. But I mean, the entire document is truly a resource for a consumer to get it right the first time. But the key takeaway is to change how we think, because in the United States, in North America, Europe, we live in the land of seller beware, right? Seller beware. There's every kind of regulatory body and law and groups and everybody's looking out for the consumer, right? But when we go overseas, we are truly moving into the land of buyer beware because those regulatory bodies either A, don't exist, or even if they do exist, they don't have a budget to do very much. And so you don't have consumer protections. But this goes back to my new favorite talk, which is you know freedom and personal responsibility, two sides of the same coin. I love the freedom. I love the freedom to live and work and make decisions outside the US, but I have to take the personal responsibility for the due diligence to get it right because nobody's looking out for me. I have to look out for myself or truly, we have to look out for one another, right? And no man's an island kind of thing, but at the same time, it does start with us. But if we don't know what we don't know, and we don't know the right questions to ask, and we don't even understand that we're moving into the land of buyer beware, you know, lots of yucky things can happen and lots of yucky things do happen. And so I started writing this book about 25 years ago. It's been through many editions. It gets updated every year, blah, 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 blah. But basically the whole point of this consumer resource guide was to help anybody, everybody looking at property overseas to get it right the first time, to do it right the first time. Because even if somebody buys somebody else's property, but they love it, they have a great experience, they're going to tell people about the great experience of living as an expat or buying a property overseas or, or whatever it is. And that grows the marketplace. And, you know, selfishly, I win when the marketplace grows. I guess maybe in a philosophical sense, I win because somebody made a good decision and they're happy. And I think that's good for the world and good for karma, right? But yeah. um, the Consumer Resource Guide, gosh, it's such an easy, simple thing to request. Please request it. Read through it. 15 questions. It'll take you 20, 25 minutes to look through it. If you're looking for property overseas, you absolutely need to read it, understand it, and begin to change how you think.
buyer beware is a whole different environment. And this book will help you begin to think differently so that you become the smart, wise consumer in a foreign land. Nice, nice, man. Cheers to that. And yeah. I will certainly put the email address in the show notes so people don't have to rewind and try to find it. And of course, okay. the website is ecidevelopment.com. It's a really well-designed website. You got several communities. I think I see over a dozen if I were to count them up. And you got another section for properties and renting versus owning versus investing. And the Teak stuff is on there too. So it is a, a real great resource in and of itself. And I don't think I saw anywhere. What does ECI stand for? Oh, you, you had to ask. Ah, uh, so the, the name of the three guys who started it? No, it's worse. Ah. So when we first started our little mortgage company back in 19, I guess we corporately formed in 94 as a mortgage company. But anyway, we were on this little island and the islands off the coast of Belize are called Keys, C-A-Y-E, right? And so we named our company Exotic Key International. And had we known that we were going to morph into all kinds of other things and whatever, we would be outside Belize and we're not on the keys and we would have named it differently. But once we bought the property in Nicaragua, we realized, well, that doesn't work anymore. So we shortened it to ECI development. So <laughs> right on, right on. Here's, here's the big tip. If you ever start a business, think big. <laughs> when you, the name. <laughs> hey, I picked a name that is a made up word. So when people are looking for higher side and it can be spelled multiple ways and every other business is asking, can I get your email? I'm like, you know, I really don't want to spell this thing out for you, <laughs> but uh, that's the way it goes. You know, I should have just been the conspiracy show or something that nobody could screw up, but here we are. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but the good thing is it's a broad umbrella. No one knows what the higher side chats is supposed to cover. So one day you're talking about aliens, next day you're talking about properties in Central America, you know? <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. You know, Greg, I mean, this has been a tremendous conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I've enjoyed sharing with you, but, you know, sharing with the folks listening about the adventure that they can have overseas. I'm guessing that anybody who's tuned in for the whole two hours certainly has an adventurous spirit. And I encourage that. I applaud that. And, and Greg, thanks for letting us get out and talk about it. Yeah, thanks for doing it. I thought this was really enjoyable. And I know it's not for everyone, but I like presenting options. It's easy to feel sort of trapped for one reason or another. And sometimes yeah. we just need to be presented with some new options and take a leap. If you can put yourself and your family in a better environment or make an investment that could break a cycle of barely getting by or create some multi-generational wealth, it should be heavily considered. And Mike, I appreciate all you do to help people in all sorts of different situations. I'm glad we were introduced. Take care out there. You too. Thanks, Greg. All right, guys. How about it? Has to have been unexpected, but I walked away from this interview really charged up about the possibilities. Mike even sent me some pictures afterwards of his girls having all sorts of fun growing up in Nicaragua, seeing the baby sea turtles hatch, zip lining in the jungle and something called volcano sliding, basically sledding on the sandy gravel on the side of a volcano. Wild stuff. And I know every listener is going to be at a different point in their life. I can't help that. So if this doesn't apply to your specific situation at this time, I'm sorry about that. 
But these mortgages are cheaper than in the U.S. You are closer to the natural world. You have organic, locally grown food as a norm, and industrialization hasn't completely poisoned the environment. So for the adventurists who want to start a new life somewhere, Mike brings about a dozen interesting options to the table. I'm pretty committed to what I got going on right now, but in five years, who knows? Plus, it's not always a song about me, it's a song about you guys. It's fun to consider it and picture it and kind of daydream about it. Plus, I have a lot more knowledge now than I did before this, and maybe I'll dip my toe in with the teak plantation. <laughs> that just sounds so amazing as a way to set up each new generation of your family with a little cash infusion when it's important. We have to get creative because the paths we're told to walk pretty much lead to nowhere. And sometimes when I'm on other shows, people ask me how we're going to stop all this stuff. Actually, I think that was also a question that came up in the Gramerica Mount Shasta event Q&A that I added to the Plus Members bonus page. If you are a Plus member, look in the menu, go to the bonuses page, and scroll down, and you will see the Gramerica Q&A. It's a lot of fun, actually. Darren had some great lines. Joe Root made some really good points. And I rambled on a bit like Russell Brand on The Bill Maher Show. But one of the questions even there was about stopping the World Economic Forum, climate policy, digital currencies, climate credits, etc. Like, how do we win? How do we defeat the big machine? And I'm always reminded in these moments of Gordon's line that not everyone gets to fight Sauron. Sometimes you aren't the hero of the story. Sometimes it's not your role in life to be Hercules, you know? And you can't make people do anything or work together in any significant way. So the way you win is not to stop it all from happening, but to anticipate it and to reorient your life so it affects you less. It's important to really grasp the reality that these things that worry us are coming. It's not a matter of stopping them. It's about how much freedom and autonomy you're going to have in your individual life, despite all that stuff. And Mike added a few more feathers to your optionality cap today. Why not just step up and get the consumer resource guide he offered? Just email mike.cobb at ecidevelopment.com. The link is in the show notes. And so we did cover a lot in the first hour, but I am really happy I had to because in the Plus Show, we added more material about different paths to residency and visas or citizenship across Central America, comparing food costs, quality, and access versus the U.S., living in synergy with local populations, crime statistics, and police corruption in these areas, navigating South American bribe culture, teak investment opportunities, probably the best part, and also the best investments and rental property opportunities with ECI development. Lots of really good info. I'd get the seven-day free trial just to hear about the teak thing. Man, <laughs> lots to like. And sometimes the solution is just to move out of the way of a runaway train before it crashes. And I hope you feel a bit more educated on what this sort of solution would entail if it's something that swirls around in your brain from time to time. And higher side news, we are in the last few days of the eBay outline auction. Check it out at ebay.com slash USR slash higher side chats. Only about 20 outlines left up there and maybe two to four days left to get one. 
Other than that, well, you know we're going to check the meetups calendar, so let's see where the people are coming together next. All right, coming right up March 11th, we have a Spooner, Wisconsin meetup. Also March 11th, a Vancouver Island beach meetup. Also March 11th, one in Scottsdale, Arizona. March 18th, Harrisburg, Oregon. March 22nd, Arroyo Hondo, New Mexico. And March 23rd, the Antler Hunt Campout on Pot Mountain in northern New Mexico. And that clears the calendar for the month of March. Good events all over this great land. <laughs> I like it. Have some fun with the calendar, guys. Make events anytime for any reason and meet some new people that also like THC. Probably in more ways than one. But that does it. Reach out to Mike if you want more information on any of this. He's a great resource. And good luck out there. The dangers must be growing, for the rowers keep on rowing, and they're certainly not showing any signs that they are slowing. Thanks for listening. I've done my part. Your move, expat enthusiasts, Central America contingency planners, and abandoners of the collapsing empire. Your fucking move. Well, they tie that yellow ribbon around the oak tree. They've worn out all the prayers. do it.